With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 27th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the basketball tournament, the winner-take-all, open-to-everyone event, featuring lots of players you've never heard of and a few that you barely remember playing for a grand prize of $1 million. We'll also talk to basketball legend Nancy Lieberman about what it's like for a woman to coach men. And we'll be joined by Brad Baluchian to discuss his quest to hang out with all 14 players from a single pack of 1986 Topps baseball cards. I'm all alone this week here in Washington, D.C. because my longtime sports companion, Stefan Fatsis, is in New York. But no matter where he is, Stefan is the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and he is number one in our hearts. How are you, Stefan? Hi, Josh. Well, I'm, I'm with, with another guy here. I'm not alone. So maybe you're alone, but I'm not alone. And I don't really care that you're, you're alone. You're never alone when the Lord is with you. I, by the way, I, my new nickname is The Lord. <laughs> it's if you're not, I, but I'm not going to tell you where. If you're not number one in our hearts, Mike, you're in the conversation. You're on, yeah. the, you're on the podium in our hearts. You're somewhere deep in the conversation (laughs) to be a bronze medalist of the podium. (laughs) You're somewhere deep inside the left ventricle. It's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, The Heart. With Mike Pesca. With Mike Pesca. Thanks. Hey, anytime. Anytime, Lord. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we'll discuss this weekend's Baseball Hall of Fame ceremony, the Junior Seau controversy at the NFL Hall of Fame, whether it would be better if all Hall of Famers insulted everyone in their speeches, just like Michael <laughs> Jordan did that one time. That was great. 
hear this bonus segment and others like it and hang up and listen. Various other Slate shows. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus, and you can get a free two-week trial at that very same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. All right, let's uh, get situated in this first segment by noting that the tournament is a basketball tournament that is open to all comers, features 96 teams plus last year's defending champion, the Notre Dame fighting alumni. It is not bow to the tyranny of even numbers in tournaments, Stefan. 96? Well, we'll give you 97. The winning team after next weekend's finals in New York City gets a grand total of a million dollars, which has a very Austin Powers-ish feel to it. A million dollars. A whole million dollars in 2015. Uh, The final four is now set. Um, They've played down from 97. Overseas elite will play City of Gods. Ants alumni will play the non-creatively named Team 23. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I watched a fair bit of the tournament. The games were on ESPNU. Uh, The color commentator was Dan Dockich, least favorite broadcast personality of mine. Really hate that guy. Um, (laughs) Not your dream broadcaster. No, not my dream broadcaster. I found it... I find this whole thing extremely interesting conceptually for a lot of reasons that we can get into. Actually, watching the games was less entertaining than I thought it was going to be. Michael Sweetney, a former NBA lottery pick, plays on the City of Gods team. He weighs more than 400 pounds. (laughs) And it's Um, so funny because when he was picked, they were like, well, if his weight's not a problem. Yeah. But but Pops Mensabansu is also on that team. He looked great. George Washington star. He is still cut. Sweeney went to Georgetown, right? He went to GW. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Did I say Georgetown? No, 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 no. You got it right. Okay. I'm just saying they, they, they know they, they know each other probably from DC yeah. circles. Yeah. The circle being Sweetney. <laughs> um, what do you make of the the tournament, Mike? Um, what do you think of the concept? What do you think of of the execution? It's so cool. I think, especially since one of the best players is named James Gist. So. It's not, it's democratic and it's meritocratic, but it also has elements of, you know, I, I, I think that there are Svengali's putting some of these teams together and it's definitely for money. So basically it's guys who are the best players, not quite to not quite make the NBA. So there are some exceptions. I mean, there's a whole team of Mad Ants D-League guys. So by definition, these are the guys who almost made the NBA. There's Sweetney who almost made the NBA. But I think that when I assess the rosters, I just went by how many guys I know. Kyle Fogg, I remember him from the NCAA tournament. But what about the element of actually playing together as a team? I mean, don't you think the Mad Ants have... I mean, this is this is what's great about it, that you could debate all these points. Don't you think that the collection of great individuals is not going to be as good as a great team who knows how to play as a team like the Mad Ants? Yeah, I think so. And what was interesting to me in watching um, these four games that were on ESPNU over the weekend is that there were matchups between these teams of sort of hired guns um, and teams that have been playing together for a long time. There's this kind of level of semi-professional sports in this country that does not get covered. I guess it's kind of similar to guys who like play pool for money or cards for money. Yeah. That there there are these tournaments, just basketball tournaments everywhere that teams play for money. And there was one of these teams, the final eight was the Dirty South, an Atlanta team. And they're, they play together all the time just in these money tournaments. And they're not guys who went to 
famous colleges. They're not guys who you know from the NCAA tournament. They're just like dudes who are good at basketball, have played together for a long time. And they do have that kind of team chemistry that you don't see from maybe the like LA unified team that was down to five players <laughs> because they're actually better known. And a lot of their like European coaches were like, you know what? You're not really allowed to play in the tournament this weekend. You, you know, you have to try out for for our team in, in Sweden. And, and uh, you know, that's not that's not really going to help us if you get injured playing in this weird, random event. But yeah, I didn't know about this as somebody who follows sports extremely closely. Um, you don't really think about these guys who are amazing at sports who can maybe make money off of it sometimes and just are never going to be in the newspaper. A lot of these guys are making money off of it. I assume that that some percentage of the players in the tournament do have contracts with overseas teams or are trying out for overseas teams or their agents are sending out, you know, highlight reels from the tournament to overseas teams. There was a uh, the New York Times had a piece over the weekend about trying out for the Korean Basketball League. They hold their tryouts at a at a casino gym in Vegas. And, you know, Shmush Parker was there and Rashad McCants was there. Presumably they are not playing in this tournament, though I bet some of them might have been too, depending on the schedule. But basketball is really the only sport that we have this affinity for for the game below the top level. You know, you think of the Rucker League or you think of just hanging out on West 4th Street or you think about books like um, Heaven is a Playground or the City Game. You can watch lower-level basketball, lower-level being unbelievably <laughs> great athletes playing this sport and still be entertained where I'm not so interested in watching a semi-pro football game or a minor league hockey game. Um, or a rookie league baseball game, except for the ambiance. In terms of the skill level, it's almost replicable. I also like the fact that it's a combination between real players and guys who are household names, especially if your household like is a big Syracuse fan base. And then you could look at the Bayheim team, Bayheim's Army. I don't know why it wasn't Bayheim's Ballers that has Eric Dievendorf on the team and Lawrence Moten and Hakeem Warwick. I mean, these are guys who played in the NBA or were drafted in the first round. So it definitely has the air of professionalism, but it also has the air, like the little blurby write-ups are very much like the uh, brief descriptions that you'd get of a contestant on a show like American Gladiators or American Ninja Warrior. This is basically NBA meets American right. Ninja Warrior. So I love the amateurism melded with the fact that there's a million dollars at stake. Can I just append my last answer? I was looking at the Ants roster. And the center on the team is Tommy Smith. He's the first two words in that New York Times story about trying out for the <laughs> Korean Basketball League. There you go. If this thing is going to get bigger than it is now in terms of fan interest, Mike, you mentioned the Bayheim team. The team that won last year was the Notre Dame Fighting Alumni, which was all players that if you're a college basketball fan, you probably heard of guys like um, Chris Thomas and Turin Francis and, you know, guys who led Notre Dame to the NCAA tournament. If we get more teams like that that are just alumni groups from specific schools, you actually saw in the crowd, there were like Syracuse fans yeah. who <laughs> went to this tournament. They and should get Syracuse alumni cheerleaders to come out and do it. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> but again, there's this kind of pleasing dichotomy between the types of teams where you have the collections of guys who've played together. You have the assortments of like random guys who have washed out 
of the pros and have maybe grew up in LA together and and have played together um, since back then. And then you have these, you know, guys from Atlanta who are, you know, closer to amateurs and have been, um, you know, playing in these money tournaments. But I would describe the um, structure of the tournament as deceptively complicated. It's like, yeah, <laughs> everyone, well, the fact that it's like anyone a, can, of, it's like anyone can enter and you win a million dollars, but then you like look into the rules and it's like, you have to go up your amateur status. And there are like 97 teams, but then there's like a super 17. And um, <laughs> that's right. The super, instead of a sweet 16, they have a super 17 because the Notre Dame team was slotted in, even though they lost to the Ants alum. So playing game. And then the million dollars is actually divided up in this really bizarre way where the (laughs) person who is the booster for the team because you get selected for the tournament if you have enough fans on social media. So that person gets a few thousand dollars and then they divide the rest of the money up where certain players will get 50,000 and others will get 80,000. And they were talking about this on ESPN and just the kind of least honest way possible where the sideline report. Well, first of all, the sideline reporter kept interviewing players who just said, actually, I can't talk. I'm about to go into the game. (laughs) (laughs) She just kept getting burned uh, that way. And then she would just be like, what would it mean to you to get this million dollars? And the player wouldn't correct her by saying, like, actually, I've been apportioned uh, (laughs) 52,000 of this million. But they're just like, I don't know. It's just just really big. And then the, the crowd... I'm I'm not like wanting to shit all over this tournament because it is a great concept and it's only in its second year and it will probably get bigger and it's fun. But there are like, you know, a hundred people in the audience or something. And the sideline reporter goes to Chris Porter, who was the SEC player of the year and played at Auburn. Doesn't this remind you of March Madness? These fans are going crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Just seem like systematic lies about what was actually happening in the tournament and in front of our eyes. I know. Well, anyone who criticizes the tax code for its complications. I mean, this thing is like a couple of years old and it's more complicated than that. And it has it has the whiff of everyone, you know, sitting down at a table, whoever organized this and saying, all right, what about this? All right. Th- this is how we address that. Uh, we'll apportion. We'll apportion everything. Well, how about getting fans involved? All right. We'll give fans a prize. All right. Well, what if there are a thousand <laughs> fans? All right. The, the number one fan gets 5,000 bucks all the way down to the number thousand fan. He gets a T-shirt. Right. And it all <laughs> once you're done, you have twenty eight thousand and rules, so it's a little bit confusing. Did you guys see some of the teams are mixed gender? Did you see any women get into any of these games? Definitely not, no. No, because I know the LA Unified team has a USC player on it. There are a couple, there's no no rule that you can't. Well, it had a very rec league feel. Like It was amazing to me that in the last eight, there were two teams that had either five or six players just because guys didn't show up. Yeah. And if you've ever played any rec league sport, you know that that is the most authentic thing that has happened in this tournament. And some of it was like, oh, if we make the final four, like this guy, will... there was one guy on the L.A. team who was playing in the Pan Am games, so he couldn't make it. There were other guys, like Stefan said, who were trying out for foreign leagues. But there is nothing more true to life 
than a rec league team that cannot field the appropriate number right. of players. They except also, uh, except if uh, during the semifinals, if as the play was going on at one end of the basket, some other team was just shooting shots <laughs> at the unoccupied <laughs> end of the basket. That would be best. The other thing that's authentic about it appears to be the way that the coaches are taking it very, very seriously. I'm just reading the recap of the City of Gods Bayheim's Army game. And the the lead is how the coach of the City of Gods basically compared the to the 1992 Olympic Dream Team. He said everybody had to sacrifice. Everyone had to sacrifice. Pops Mensabansu said, "Yeah, everyone had. To, they were all great on that team, City of Gods, just like the the 92 Olympic team." Maybe we should also end with the like all the comparisons to March Madness. And granted, only this is a winner takes all tournament, and only the the winning team uh, gets paid at all. But just considering how kind of low rent this is and the fact that the players are getting paid versus all of the crazy amounts of non-Austin Powers-esque, you know, billions of dollars that's going to the NCAA tournament and none of those players are getting paid. I, I stipulated at the top of the broadcast that Dan Dockich is horrible, but just to provide a little bit of supporting evidence, he goes, wouldn't it be great if they had this for college basketball and the players played for their scholarship money? Great idea. Yeah. It's like, then they would really know that they are getting paid. They'd stop awesome. complaining. Awesome idea. Yeah. <laughs> Championship weekend, Rose Hill Gym. Famous Rose Hill Gym at Fordham University in the Bronx. Take so your, set it take up. Take your it's, kids, Mike. It's, I, I might. It's uh, the Overseas Elite hashtag tax-free SH money. Tax-free money? Anyway, I looked up the hashtag. There's only one uh, tweet with that hashtag. Mm-hmm. So Overseas Elite with uh, St. John's alum Paris Horn, Mick uh, Cabongo, McDonald's All-American. St. John's alum Paris DJ Kennedy. My support. DJ Kennedy's there. Then you got the team City of Gods, which is just uh, stacked. Yep. Joe Connolly's the coach. And you got Mike Sweetney, who you mentioned, DeMar Johnson. Pops. Yup, Damar Johnson. Then Ants alumni, who we talked about. Not too many great individual names. Brian Butch, I remember from Wisconsin. I think he's six eleven. Matt Bolden, I think he was a shooter on. Also in the Korean League he story, he signed Gonzaga. a contract. He got drafted by the Korean League and signed the contract. They made them sign the contracts on the spot <laughs> after they draft in Vegas. And then the uh, other team is Team Twenty Three, who's uh, an Illinois team, as can be imagined. I don't think they're actually an Illinois they're team. Not an sure? Illinois team. No. Actually, there's a state. Yeah, they're named after Michael <laughs> the Jordan. Twenty. What was the twenty third state in the union? I think that's it. They're named after Mike. I think they're I'm from looking. the West, and they had yeah. a lot of players Maybe I hadn't heard from of. Arizona. Okay. The tournament. Watch it. Follow it. Million dollars at stake. Go away, Dan Dockich. Now it is time for a special announcement. Slate's Culture Gab Fest. If you're a fan, if you're not a fan, no matter what you do. It is coming to Chicago for the very first time, and there is nothing you can do about it. As a fan, I'm excited, and you should be excited, too. You can join Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens as they discuss the most compelling cultural happenings of the week with the Q&A to follow. The event will be recorded for an upcoming episode of the podcast, but you want to be there live because it's fun. Live shows are great, and it's happening. This is important. The date, Tuesday, September 22nd, Music Box Theater in Chicago, doors at 7, show at 7.30. There's a very limited number of tickets as well for a pre-show cocktail hour. Tickets are on sale now, and Slate Plus members get 30% off their purchase price. That's Culture Gab Fest, live in Chicago, September 22nd, 7.30 p.m. The show starts. For more information or to buy tickets, go to slate.com slash cultureshy. 
Now, you might have a few questions about how it's spelled. I've got you covered. That's slate.com slash C-U-L-T-U-R-E-C-H-I. Like the first few letters of Chicago. Makes sense. Uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest, Chicago. Be there. Okay, before we move on to our next topic, just want to note that Mike Pesca will be setting this one out, but he will be back for topic number three. Last week, the San Antonio Spurs won a championship that they will probably not be commemorating by hanging a banner in the rafters. Uh, That was the championship of the NBA's Las Vegas Summer League. And it was notable because the Spurs head coach was a woman, Becky Hammond. Hammond was a full-time assistant for San Antonio last season, and Spurs coach Greg Popovich said in an interview last year, when you've been around it, you know who can coach and who can't coach. Becky is one of those people. She's a Steve Kerr. She's a Doc Rivers. She's also like Nancy Lieberman, following the path carved out by the woman who a few years ago coached the Texas legends of the NBA's Development League. Lieberman, known as Lady Magic, is a broadcaster and Olympian, a member of many basketball halls of fame, and a former player for the Washington Generals. So you know she can take a loss with a plum, even though she didn't lose too many times in her career. Nancy Lieberman, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for all the uh, nice, kind words. I want to start with a few more kind words for you, Nancy, if that's okay. Um, I want to start with your own experience before we get to Becky Hammond. You were a great player. You coached in the WNBA, but you had never coached a pro men's team um, before the Texas Legends. Ben, Ben McGrath wrote a great profile of you in The New Yorker in 2011, and he wrote that in late 2009, when you were offered that job, You went on a year-long listening tour seeking advice from veteran NBA coaches and other wise men, in his words. Uh, Why did you do that, and what did you learn along the way? Well, I I knew that I had a lot of responsibility ahead of me. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we were going to win no matter how I was judged uh, with W and L's, wins and losses, that I was going to be able, with my staff, to take young men make them better decision-makers, make them better husbands, boyfriends, teammates. So we wanted to make sure that I understood, you know, most of the kids that I was coaching uh, were African-American guys. And I wanted to make sure that I understood what their needs were, just not my needs for them to play the game. And it really helped in my relationships. And, you know, look, I grew up playing in Harlem and, you know, uh, the joke always has been, you know, uh, I, I'm the, the blackest white girl that you know uh, because of my growing up and just having great relationships with, uh, you know, minorities. But I felt that I needed to understand what, you know, what I could do to help them as much as what they could do to help us as a team. I mean, Mike Tomlin was so amazingly helpful, and I I flew up to Pittsburgh. I reached out to Spike Lee. I reached out to a lot of people, Deion Sanders, because I wanted to make sure we were doing this the right way. Now, a lot of that, Nancy, is informed by your own career, I imagine, and also your gender and also who you are as a person. You've been coached by men. You were coached by women in your career. What do you think was important for you to sort of take from you know, different from these different people and that how do you think your gender influenced the way that you went about coaching men? Well, I mean, I'm a minority and I know this, you know, there are some struggles, especially if you're talking about kids from the 60s, 70s growing up and maybe not having what avails itself to today's opportunities. And we didn't have a roadmap. 
the good thing for my friend Becky is she's got a little bit of a roadmap here, you know, for what people have been able to kind of set the plate. And then she can say, okay, this has been done or somebody has at least been in my shoes. And when I look back on where I came from, there's no doubt that it helped prepare me for playing the game, coaching the game, communicating the game, and understanding people for who they are, people. And not just, you know, putting them in, well, they're white or they're black or they're this or they're that, men or women. And I think it, it, I know that it helped me in how I handle uh, the guys that I coach. You know, I coached in the summer league uh, with the, the Sacramento Kings a couple weeks ago. And I was on Coach Carl's staff. And, you know, Becky and I had a chance to visit. And, and then I was so proud of her. And, you know, she just handles herself uh, with amazing character. So Greg Popovich and the Spurs organization were the ones to make this decision to hire Becky Hammond, who is now being talked about seriously. There are articles about it in ESPN and CBS about um, whether she could be the first woman to be the head coach of an NBA team. How important was it to get the kind of sanction of the Spurs organization, one that's seen as maybe the premier organization in all of professional sports? When you have R.C. and you have R.C. Buford and you have Coach Popovich making life-altering decisions like this and knowing that he's qualified, you know, I mean, she had never coached before, but, but Coach Popovich knew her and knew of her work habits and her understanding of the game. So it's very important in those relationships there's a comfortability Everything in life is about opportunity. Somebody gave Coach Popovich an opportunity, you know, 18, 19, 20 years ago to be able to coach in the NBA as an assistant. Everybody, somebody gave Warren Buffett opportunity. Somebody gave you guys opportunity. So what the Spurs organization did was give this opportunity to her, and then it was her job to take it to the level of respect, and she's done it, like I said, like a champ. And she's ready for it. I mean, Derek, Derek Fisher went from the, ben- from the court to the bench. Jason Kidd went from the court to the bench. In 1998, when the Detroit Shock hired me to be their head coach and GM, I came from the court right to the bench. I'm sure there were a lot of people and naysayers who said we couldn't do it. But we can do it. Those articles Josh referenced, ESPN and others, quote some anonymous NBA front office executives talking about how, oh, assistants, you know, pound the pavement and they have to go to Sioux Falls and overseas and elsewhere to develop their coaching bona fides. But there are these examples typically with former stars who leap right into the game. And, you know, for the Spurs to to be doing this with Becky Hammond, to give her this opportunity and to have this conversation existing, well, if it's legitimate, it's legitimate. Uh, I I think that that's just a, a potential way to hold people back. What's interesting to me also here, Nancy, is that this is a time when there aren't as many women coaching as there were at one point. According to NCAA numbers, back when Title IX came into effect, 90% of all women's teams were coached by women. Today, it's about 40%, and the number of women coaching men's team is something around 2%. Do you have a, a feeling for why the number of women coaching is, is not as high as it might be? Well, I mean, think about it. If you're a, co- if you're a male coach coaching 
college basketball. If you get fired, which is likely to happen, you can then go to another college team. You could go to women's college. You could go to women's high school, and you can go to men's high school. So there are some options that keep you in the game. If you're a women's head coach or a coach at the collegiate level and you get fired and you don't get hired in the NCAA, you can go to high school. And that's it. Where else are you going to go? Yeah, I think what happened, what happened partly, right, Nancy, is that when women's basketball and other sports became more legitimized scholarships, full-time jobs, salary increases, men wanted the jobs too. Absolutely. I mean, look how many men are in the NBA. But I have to tell you that the Lambeers and the Coopers, Richie Adubatos, the Ronnie Rothsteins, those guys really were amazing in helping us learn what the next level of basketball was. They were great mentors to us. But, of course, you know, you would like to have more options for women in a women's game, but that's not life. You know, you hire the best people available, and we're hoping that this kind of funnels over into the NBA. So in a story for Time, which was written last year, um, you gave advice to Becky Hammond, and you wrote about your own experience, and you talked about how, as a woman, you can coach a team differently or you can communicate with players differently. Can you um, explain your relationships with, you know, in the New Yorker profile, I mentioned Antonio Daniels, Justin Denman, some of the guys on the Legends, and how you were able to communicate with them? You know, it, it helped. Most of these kids have been raised, by and large, by their moms or females in their household. So although... I am a no-nonsense, you know, coach. I mean, you know, you have to be firm but fair. But I do know that they will come to me and they'll share some things that are on their heart that maybe they wouldn't go to a male coach because, you know, they don't want to show a weakness. And, you know, these are just really, they're they're babies. They're, They're amazingly talented men, but strip away who they are and how big they are they're babies. They want to be loved and cared about, and they want to be able to talk to somebody about, you know, what makes them happy, what makes them sad. And, you know, we have mind coaches, strength coaches, conditioning coaches. We have everybody on NBA staff. And if you can have a Becky Hammond or a Nancy Lieberman or somebody that they respect and they reach out to, then that's, that's going to be really important uh, in the mix. I mean, just think about it. I was coaching the SAC team the other day uh, as an assistant, and we played Denver, and Emmanuel Moutier were in the layup line, excuse me, the uh, handshake line after the game. And as we got to shake hands, Emmanuel looked up and he goes, Miss Nancy. And NBA TV was getting ready to interview him. And we hugged each other, and we were whispering to each other. And Dana Jacobson, when we you know, the embrace ended, she goes, what was that? And I go, oh, well, I- I've been friends with Emmanuel for years. So she grabs Emmanuel and says, Emmanuel, could you tell us about that moment you just had with Nancy Lieberman? And he says, you know, Miss Nancy's been teaching and training me since I was 11 years old with her son. And I was so happy. I didn't know she was on the end of the bench. And I was just so happy. She just made me so happy when I saw her. 
this this is a young baby. Same thing with uh, you know Marcus Smart or Julius Randall. These kids are these are babies. These kids have been around Dallas since they were starting to play ball. We have relationships, and that means something. So I, I know beyond the basketball side, I know that we could be a great person to help deliver the message of our head coach to our players. You know, I think, Nancy, that that you hit on something there, which is that men who coach women learn over time that how important the relationships are, not just between the coach and the player, but among the players themselves. And there is a different mentality. And I don't think it's gender stereotyping. And academic research and scientific research has also sort of looked at this and confirmed these sorts of behaviors um, in differences in, in the way genders interact. And I think that is important to what a woman might bring to a male team. I know it's important because I live it every day. Um, on any given day, I can have a, a major league baseball player. I can talk to an A-Rod. I can talk to... Um, Larry Fitzgerald, I can talk to, you know, different athletes, and they're going to look at me and talk to me and share with me things because, A, they they respect us, and they're willing to kind of open up. And don't we all need that? I mean, yourself or anybody else, don't you just want to take that mask off and say, hey, man, I had a bad day, or I'm a little scared about this, or I'm not sure what to do about my next contract. Do you think it's difficult to get them to respect you for the X's and O's, for the actual fundamentals of coaching a team? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, people like Becky and myself, we're like, we're like puppies. We're, we're pedigrees. We come with papers. They, they, know, you know, they know that we know our stuff because we, we really work hard at it. We don't ever take it for granted. Um, there's going to be a, a, a lot of young women, you know, who are really putting themselves in a a learning mode because they want to be able to coach at the highest level, which is the NBA. Um, and, and not to say that, you know, we wouldn't coach at a WNBA level because that's, you know, an enormous level. Uh, and, and it's the best female basketball players in the world. But you're going to see more and more, you know, just say, I can do this. If I'm qualified, I can do this. And that's a great thing. So you led the Texas Legends to the uh, playoffs. Uh, why did you decide to leave that position, and what are your goals in coaching now? Well, I'm, the, I'm still the assistant general manager and have been for the um, Texas Legends. What happened for me is I had to have a mom moment. Um, my son, I, we played 52 games my junior uh, our, our uh, first year with the team. And it was my son's junior year in high school at Plano West. I missed virtually every one of his games. And he was going to be a senior in high school. And he never made me feel guilty. But I felt like my son deserved to see his mother sitting in the stands for his senior year. It was the first time he was going to ever make the varsity and be a starter. And that's when, you know, Donnie and I talked. And I was like, look, I'm not coming back next year and and Donnie, being just the amazing man he is, uh, allowed me to be the GM. And he says, if there's any conflict, just go to TJ's games. And TJ has thus gone on to an unbelievable collegiate career at University of Richmond. He'll be a junior. And uh, it was, I've had NBA coaches and other males come up to me and say, that was a remarkable decision. 
because they wish they could have done that at some point in their careers as well. But that's that's one of the issues here. Work-life balance is often cited when it comes to reasons that that women coaches may not want to take that next step, that next commitment, that college, that all-encompassing college job. How do you think going forward that resolves itself? Or maybe it doesn't. You can do both. You can absolutely do both. Um, for you know somebody to say, well, I can't coach because of family, that's not true. You can, you can do that. Uh, I live it every single day, that work-life balance. I know you can do it with a supporting family. You can, you can have it all if you're willing you know, to make that sacrifice and your family's willing to understand. Uh, when I was coaching in Detroit, my first job, I mean, my husband moved uh, with TJ was a baby. He was three years old. I shouldn't say a baby, but he was three. And we made it work. So it, it is doable. It, it's it's not easy. It's not look. It's not easy for guys. People think that men go to work, make money, support the family, but it, it doesn't matter to them that they miss you know Susie's recital and Danny's football game. It really weighs on them. I know. I'm around these guys. I mean, uh, Rick Carlisle is like an incredible dad to his. I think she's 11 years old, Abby going to her recitals and, and carving out time and, you know, with his wife, Donna, it's doable. I, I see it. I see it with Joe Girardi. I see it with Mike Tomlin. I see how Larry Fitzgerald handles himself as a father. It's very doable. I think that's a good place to end it. I just want to add one final thought. It's that if you lean in, that violates the principle of verticality. So you have to watch out for that. They'll call they'll call a foul on you. They will, unless you're a Lambier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nancy, thank you uh, so much, and good luck with everything going forward. No, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Nancy Laberman was the head coach of the Texas Legends of the NBA's Development League. She is also a member of many basketball halls of fame and a sports broadcaster. Hi, I'm Jack Dillon, producer of The Most Useful Podcast Ever, a new podcast on Panoply from Popular Mechanics. Each episode, our editors will do their best to improve your life by helping to explain one of its unique challenges, from how to make the perfect omelet to how to paddle your own canoe. And spoiler, you're not doing it right unless you build the canoe yourself. And we will use our workshop to test out some of the latest, though not necessarily greatest, technologies and products that the world has to offer. So join us in building a better world, one that you build yourself out of omelets and canoes. Listen to Popular Mechanics, the most useful podcast ever, on Panoply. Last month, scientist and writer Brad Baluchian embarked on a cross-country road trip, passing through 21 states so far and putting more than 7,500 miles on his 2002 Honda Accord. The goal, meet all 14 players from a pack of 1986 Topps baseball cards. That pack features a couple of superstars, Carlton Fisk, Dwight Gooden, a few relatively well-known players like Vince Coleman, Steve Yeager, and Rick Sutcliffe, some utility guys with mustaches, and Rance Mullenix and Randy Reddy, and one guy I had never heard of, Brewers pitcher Jaime Kokenauer. All in all, it's a pretty representative pack of baseball cards, and it even includes the fabled Topps Checklist, a card that is just a list of other cards. To follow along with Brad's journey, go to WaxPackBook on Twitter, waxpackbook.com. And to listen to Brad talk, wait for about three more seconds after I tell you that he's joining us from the Red Roof Inn outside Cooperstown, New York. How are you, Brad? I'm really good, thanks. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm disappointed that you didn't try to interview the checklist, but well, we will we'll press on. You know, I could use your guys' advice. Any any bright ideas you might have about how to handle the checklist? I'm uh, I'm all ears. I would uh, interview the greatest Czech scholar of Franz List. <laughs> I'm looking him up right now. That's the first. <laughs> we will we'll have that information for you by the end of the segment. Um, but let's give everybody the appropriate mental picture. 86 tops. Those were the ones with the black border at the top, the white border at the bottom, team name in big blue, yellow, orange, or red block letters. We're pretty much the same age, Brad. And like you, this is the first set of cards I remember collecting. I was six years old in 86. What's interesting about it is I have a strong sense of nostalgia for that black border, for the team name in those big blocky letters, but not so much for a lot of these players because a lot of them were veterans at this point, and I feel like I missed most of their career. So how does that work for you? Nostalgia for card versus nostalgia for this particular set of players? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, sort of like you, uh, some of these guys, I didn't really you know grow up following their careers, but like you also, you have this sort of uh, you know innate connection to the card itself and, and sort of something about the aesthetics of the card. So for me, uh, and then of course there were some players in there that I that I really did um, know and and follow, and Don Carmen sort of being number one, where he was my favorite player as a little kid, and he also uh, is in the pack, so that was that was really nice. You uh, clearly must have opened a few packs and found the one with Don Carmen, and then said, <laughs> "This is the one for the book." Yeah. So in full disclosure, I knew that if I opened just one pack, that was probably not going to fly because you know what if I get six guys that are dead or. So I opened a few packs, and basically the one that, uh, yeah, Don Carbon was a huge factor. But uh, I also wanted to, you know, make sure that most of the guys were, were still around, and there was a mix of, you know, people spread out, spread out around the country because you don't want to have, you know, a road trip that's just in California. So, you know, that's kind of how, uh, how but, but I, I preserved the integrity of the pack, and, that, you know, there was no mixing and matching. There was how no, do we know that, Brad? Well, you, you're going to have to Is there video? <laughs> I should have probably, I think we have still photography, but I did not videotape the entire pack opening process. So you're going to have to take a leap of faith here. All right. I see. So for my age, this was when I was 13 or 14. And at that exact age, I got hired to work in uh, the Collector's Stadium, Baldwin, New York's greatest uh, baseball card store. And so there are a couple fascinating things, but I went right to Vince Coleman because I looked it up now in a Vince Coleman rookie card. This was his rookie card, right? Yeah, that's right. That's okay. True. So a Vince Coleman rookie at one point, given where there that there was a bubble, definitely sold for twenty bucks. Now you could have wow. it for fifty cents. Upon meeting Vince Coleman, did you present him with the shocking statistic? Well, no, because I have not met Vince Coleman. In fact, he's become sort of my, you know this chimerical creature that, I, that I'm yep. trying to track down and one of the few guys I haven't been able to get. But with every sort of attempt, you know, the, the legend of Vincent Van Gogh grows. And uh, I actually went, you know, I, I wrote about this uh, on the blog, but I went down to spring training and I basically stalked him and uh, found out some obscure details from his childhood from an old Sports Illustrated article that when he was a kid, he loved his Uncle Carter's sweet potato fries. So mm-hmm. I went to the right field line, and when he, he's a coach for the White Sox now, so when he came jogging down the line, I just screamed out, Vince, Uncle Carter's sweet potato fries, which, you know, he's not hearing every day. And, uh, and that brought him over, and I, I gave my very quick pitch to him, which he sort of looked at me, scowled, and walked away. 
and uh, and that's sort of set off this several you know this um, multi-part uh, series where I try to get Vince Coleman, and I did get him on the phone at one point, and once again he shot me down very sternly this time, and uh, and then I actually went to Jacksonville where he grew up and retraced his childhood and went found the house he grew up in and. Uh, went to his high school and, you know, really uh, kind of stalked him. <laughs> yeah. If there wasn't a thing called journalism, you'd be a very dangerous person, I think, <laughs> vis-a-vis Vince Coleman. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, and then um, I even took a picture of his childhood home and texted it to him and said, well, you know, Vince, <laughs> oh, if, Jesus. if you think, you know, this is, you know, maybe now you know that I'm really serious about about writing about you. Um and no response. So, did you cut out letters from that Sports Illustrated and say, "I know where you live"? <laughs> that's that's the next step. <laughs> I, you I scroll, Mrs. Jeff... Vince Coleman, and your trapper keeper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even had Jeff Perlman uh, on his trail for me out in Tahoe when he was at a celebrity tournament, trying to nab him. So, so, but you know, Coleman is. I kind of get a kick out of Coleman because you do some research on him, and the guy is just full of just wonderful quotes. He's kind of a journalist's dream, you know. Because he was so, he bought in so much to his own hype, and he would say things. He said something like, uh, "I like earthquakes more than cyclones." I'm sorry, I like cyclones more than earthquakes because I know I can outrun a cyclone. When talking about playing in San Francisco, so it's like, didn't he say that he'd be in the Hall of the Hall of Fame if it wasn't for the infield that chased him? That's right, the infamous, yeah, the grass at Shea is keeping me out of Cooperstown. And then another quote where he talking about how great of a base dealer he was. He was talking about how you know, how important base stealing was. And he said, yeah, you know, home runs are overrated and stolen bases are really what it's all about. So, you know, I, I just, from a uh, sort of journalistic perspective, I find Vince absolutely fascinating. Brad, do you have a sort of an overarching reason for doing this? I mean, is there a sort of boys of summer quality to the journey here? Is it more about you and your own childhood, or is it about our sort of temporal relationship with these athletes who move on in life and become, you know, real estate agents and, yeah. and, and no, no, batting I'm, instructors? I'm going for overarching arc here. Um, uh, you know, I, and I, but I want to go a little bit beyond Boys of Summer, beyond just the pure nostalgia of it, and really, I guess you could say that the two main things I set out to figure out were, you know, these, guys, these players in the pack, they have two things in common. Number one, they were all in the pack, which is random. Number two, they all made the major leagues, which is not random. And so, you know, so many guys that play pro ball with maybe more talent don't make the show. So what is it about these 14 guys that got them there, even if it was for the length of a Jaime Kokenauer career? And the other thing is sort of, you know, I really focused a lot on what do these guys do right after they retired in that transitional period, which kind of fascinates me. And I kind of use the the parallel, those were the theme of growing up, and I'm 34 years old, I'm single, I'm nowhere near having kids, uh, and kind of, you know, not really sure where I'm headed in my life, and I'm now the same age that these guys were when they had to retire and sort of grow up and stop playing a game for a living. So I guess you could say that the kind of the overall, overall theme is sort of me as the narrator in my story and sort of learning from these guys as I go around the country and hearing what they did when they reached that point in their lives where they had to grow up. And I've found a lot of, you know, it's no coincidence that a lot of kind of life-changing things happened, you know, right after they left baseball. So you would imagine that baseball players or any professional athlete who retired, there would be kind of a range of feelings looking back on on the career. And that's reflected in the blog entries that you've written so far. Gary Templeton seems like he's a bit aggrieved by what happened to him during his 
career, um, I think probably fairly, but there was maybe less of a range than I thought there was going to be because, and maybe it's because, you know, these guys had relatively long careers and were decent players, if not great, the majority of the ones you've spoken to. I would say the theme that kind of hits me of, of all of their remarks is basically like not particularly impressed by their own accomplishments or not not super, you know, self-aggrandizing and putting themselves on a pedestal and just they like to tell stories about what happened to them, but they're not like I was some great guy. It's just more like, yeah, that's something that I did a while ago and it was kind of cool. That's that's spot on. In fact, I, I would say that the the big thesis of all this is that baseball players are great Buddhists. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I've discovered this real disconnect in that baseball players or ex-players are actually the least nostalgic people for the game and their past heroics of everyone in the baseball community, whether it's fans or writers. And they, you know, they will talk about this stuff if you press them on it, but they really have very little interest in reliving the past. And you know, sort of drilling down on that, I think that that ability to basically forget about what happened yesterday is really the key to answering my first question about, you know, what is it that got these guys to the major leagues and beyond their talent? And that really is this mental toughness where, you know, they, you know, baseball is a game of failure, right? So being able to forget about that failure pretty much instantly and, and sort of move on is is key. But also I've seen how that translates into their personal lives. So, I've uncovered these amazing stories of a lot of trauma, a lot of, you know, uh, dads that were not good dads of, you know, divorces, of uh, disease and, and, and heartbreak and all kinds of things that happened to these guys. And it's interesting that they, they seem to kind of use the same survival strategy to, to cope with real-life trauma that they did to become successful in baseball. And that is this idea of truly kind of being in the present and, you know, living for what's happening right now and not sort of getting stuck in the past. Well, what's compelling for us as fans and as readers is that these guys are stuck in the past. They are a picture on a baseball card that reminds us something about our youth. For us, it's sort of jarring to see them later in life. We get used to to broadcasters because we hear them and see them regularly. But for the more anonymous guys who fade away and move on to other lives, you know, it's it's shocking in a way, I think, and it must be sort of surprising, like, oh, my God, he's 58. How did that happen? I mean, I've always felt that about athletes, even, you know, as as I think it's endemic to who we are as, as fans. You know, but I think in a way, the guys that were less successful in their baseball careers have maybe handled it better, and that the Randy Reddies and the Don Carmens, these guys seem really comfortable in their own skin, even if it is a bit aged. Whereas I'm, I'm in, you know, outside Cooperstown right now, and I went to the parade of all the uh, living Hall of Famers on Saturday night, and I was hard-pressed to find a single gray hair in that bunch, which is pretty amazing considering <laughs> the age of these guys, right? So it's like how much work have some of these Hall of Famers had done? You know, why does Wade Boggs still have bright, a bright red mustache and bright red hair? It, you know, it's a little bit like you can tell that these guys, the Hall of Fame guys, are still living in that limelight and on that name, and maybe not. Maybe those guys are actually the ones most stuck in the past. And, you know, Randy Reddy is the, is the happiest guy of all. Well, because Wade Boggs can have a career as Wade Boggs. Like, people will pay him to be Wade Boggs, whereas 
Randy Reddy has to actually do something with his life. <laughs> right, that's true. But I don't know that Wade Boggs is any better off or happier for it. Sure. I mean, you saw Reggie Jackson the other day, right, getting into the... I mean, these guys have to live, still live with that, you know, having, you know, cards stuck in their face at dinner to have get autographs. So, you know, it's kind of that, um, you know, the price of fame, I guess. Also, Wade Boggs and Randy Reddy, each of them have a name that's pretty much synonymous with itself, or at least related, if you think about it. Who in your... I'll let you think about it. Who in your uh, pack delighted you the most? Oh, well, I mean... So far. I mean, there's bias here, but Don Carmen was by far the highlight, because not just because he was my favorite player as a kid, but because he is just a different guy, and he'll tell you this. He, he's working on a doctorate in psychology right now, and so how many baseball players are, are doing that, right? And he has, he, he's basically Scott Boris's right-hand guy. I mean, he's... He goes around, he's on call during the season. Whenever any of Boris's clients start to struggle, he literally gets on a plane the next day, flies to the hotel room, and immediately counsels those players. And they're willing to talk to him because they're not affiliated with the team. You know, the teams have their own psychologists, but you know that as soon as they talk to the player, they're going to go to the general manager and say, hey, this guy's got some issues. Whereas, you know, Don Carmen can pretty much come in anonymously and work with them. And Carmen was a disciple of, of Harvey Dorfman, the mental game of baseball guy, and he just has this amazing ability to understand people and observe people. And he told me about how this goes all the way back to his childhood in Oklahoma, where, you know, from a very young age, he was sort of cast as being really different and kind of an outsider. He said he, his dad died when he was 15 of a heart attack. He said his dad never spoke a word directly to him his entire childhood. And, you know, very, very sad stuff, but he also kind of, from a young age, describes himself as an observer, as somebody who just really watched people. And it's not surprising to hear now that he says, he's like, you know what, I'm not even a big baseball fan. It's not, it's not my passion. My passion is the psychology of, um, of the game and watching helping players in, in the mental aspect. So, and Brian Curtis also wrote a great piece for Slate in 2006 about how uh, Brian, who was a young uh, baseball autograph collector, got a letter in the mail from Don Carmen 15 years after he sent it with his baseball card autographed, apologizing for the long delay, that Carmen had a box of fan mail in his garage um, that he had forgotten about. And then he just went through systematically answering all these old letters um, and sending it to kids who weren't kids anymore. It was, it's a one of the, the best uh, stories that I've uh, ever edited on Slate.com. It's really fun, and we'll link to it on our show page. No, that, yeah, that was, we, you know, I, I talked with Carmen about that because I said, hey, man, I was one of those kids. I wrote him, I thought I was so clever when I was like 10 years old. I found out from the back of his baseball card when his birthday was, and I timed it so I sent him a birthday card so it would arrive on his birthday. And uh, the card said something like, you know, best wishes for smooth sailing all year long, and it had a sailboat on it. And I scratched out the word sailing, and I wrote pitching, and I thought it was so clever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I never got a response, and that sort of haunted me for years. But then I realized that I think I forgot to include a self-addressed stamped envelope. So, so, but, you know, when I was at Don's actual house a few weeks ago, I said, we're going to tear this place apart, Don, until I find the other shoebox that has my... Uh, sailboat card waiting in it, and you're going to give me your autograph. <laughs> but no, that didn't happen. We played catch, <laughs> that was fun. The other thing about this pack is that, you know, it's got that balance. Um, it's got some great names, too. It's got Rance Mullenix and Randy Reddy. The guys that won't talk to you, are you coming up with new strategies, or are you just going to 
let the road trip stand on its own. And if you fail to find Dwight Gooden or Carlton Fisk or Vince Coleman, you're just not going to you're not going to interview them. No, no. Everyone's getting their their due, their chapter. And in fact, the you know, for the guys that are, did not work with me, they're actually you know it's just as interesting. Um, for example, Dwight Gooden, I was scheduled to to meet with him. I actually was in his living room, interviewed his eldest son, who's his agent. And Little next, Doc, right? Little, Little Doc. Doc, yeah. The next day I was supposed to meet Do they know they have the Duvalier naming conventions going? <laughs> <laughs> the next day I was supposed to meet with, uh, with Big Doc, and uh, he no-showed our interview. And then he was scheduled to be at a meet-and-greet um, at this restaurant to sign autographs for fans. So I showed up to that. And it was just, it, you know, from a, a, a writer's perspective, it was really interesting to see um, this room full of fans. There were literally, there was literally a table of nuns waiting there and a kid in a wheelchair waiting to meet Doc. He completely no-showed, off the, off the grid, off the map. And, you know, I, I don't really know what's going on, but I don't think, you know, if you look at the past, it doesn't look too good for Doc right now. But the, the story of, you know, telling that story, the attempt to get good in, I think will be just as interesting as if I'd sat down with him. Well, good luck with the book project, Brad. Um, and people can follow it on Twitter, Waxpackbook, on the internet, waxpackbook.com. I guess Where Twitter's are you off on to the next? How many, you got, how many do you have left? Uh, I've got, I'm meeting with Rick Sutcliffe uh, this week in Kansas City and then the family of Al Cowens in L.A. because he's the one guy that's uh, passed away. All right. Have a good journey. Do we have the name of the checklist uh, scholar yet, Pesca? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't have that, but I did find out that uh, Franz Liszt lived in Prague for six years, so it shouldn't be too hard. There is a checklist uh, overlap. <laughs> well, I'll put my Honda Accord on a boat and get over there. All right, Brad. Take care. Thanks a lot, guys. Brad Baluchian is writing a book about a pack of baseball cards. Wax Pack Book on Twitter, waxpackbook.com. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, Stefan, you were looking through a checklist, not a checklist, uh, of mm-hmm. Topps cards from that 86 set. Did you mm-hmm. succeed in finding out who was the least valuable? It, multiple players at seven cents are the least valuable. Pick the one. most valuable, let me back it up, the most valuable at $3.70. Reds leaders, Dave Concepcion. <laughs> Then at $3.46, card number 558, Tim Stoddard, followed by $3.25, Ed Vandenberg. No, I didn't get that deep into my research, no. All right. Well, we'll we'll honor Tim Stoddard anyway. Mike, what is your Tim Stoddard? So in sport, we so do love when players at one position do the things that players at other positions are paid to do. Like when a goalie scores a goal in hockey or a fat guy with the football in football— Pitchers hitting. Who doesn't love pitchers hitting? And last week, we saw a really good example of pitchers hitting. Nate Carnes had the only run, a solo home run. You could have surmised when I said the only run. As he was uh, pitching a real gem for the Rays, he was going up against the Phillies in an interleague game. This is why Carnes would be hitting as an AL pitcher. In fact, it was the first AL pitcher home run in over four years since Zach Britton homered for the Orioles against the Braves. It was Karn's first major league hit of any kind. Rays pitchers were 0 for 14 before that home run. And we found out, here's an odd tweet, before Karn's four AL pitchers homered, 
for the only run of a one nothing victory pre-designated hitter. Those include Milt Pappas, Early Wind, Spud Chandler, and Red Ruffing. I wouldn't say include, I would say are, but yeah. So that's the entire list before the AL went interleague and DHE. Now, another interesting quirky note happened. David Ross became the first player to throw a one, two, three, ninth inning and then come out and hit a home run in the bottom of that inning since a certain Sid Fernandez did it in 1989. Fat Sid. That home run of Sid Fernandez's career, I looked this up on the baseball reference home run tracker. That's the entirety of the Sid Fernandez baseball reference home run tracker. It was against Dan Quisenberry in Bush Stadium. But it brings me to Mets hitting pitchers. They can hit. I have two theories about this. One, luck. Two, and let me document it. So, uh, Stephen Matz went three for three with four RBIs in his first game in the big leagues, had another RBI. So not, and then he got hurt. So that hitting prowess is frozen in amber, but five RBI in your first two games ties the Mets record for best hitter of any kind. Then we saw on Sunday who broke up Zach Greinke's scoreless streak. It was hitter Jacob deGrom. And Matt Harvey has been hitting well. Even gigantic Bartolo Colon has gotten into the hit parade with a hit or two of his own. Now, here's my theory. The Mets hitters are hitting a little bit better. Three for three ain't no joke. Harvey swings a mean bat for a pitcher. It's just that the rest of the Mets are so bad that it's more likely that the hitter will do something significant and it will stand out because no one else is scoring runs. So the Mets pitchers, even though I'm sure they grouse about the fact that once they give up a run, their chances of getting the win go down by 50%, they could also revel in the fact that they know when they deliver at the plate, everyone will be paying attention because they'll be the only ones. Come on, guys. How hard is it? Maybe that's why Matt's teammates made his back, tweaked his back so he'd go on the DL. He was making them all look bad. You didn't even mention uh, Noah Syndergaard. I think that guy hit a home run. Yeah, Syndergaard can hit. They're all hitting pitchers. They're hitting pitchers. It's a good name for uh, for the baseball tournament. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, what is your Tim Stoddard? Oh, you may have heard that Chris Froome on Sunday won his second uh, straight Tour de France. You also may have heard that during the race last week, a fan threw urine on him. I saw this guy just peering around. It looked a bit strange. And as I got there, he just launched this cup towards me and I, and said, doper, Froome said. There's no mistake, it was urine. Froome wasn't the first tour rider to be pelted with pee in 2013. Mark Cavendish was doused with a cup. But while tour urine throwing is a statement of protest, most flying urine at sporting events has less lofty intentions. While it's difficult to develop a full history, the practice appears to have begun at soccer stadia in Europe and Mexico in the 1970s and 80s, though you've got to figure it goes back longer than that because two necessary components have been in ready supply at sporting events forever, idiots, and urine. In the hooligan <laughs> salad days, Manchester United fans apparently tossed urine as well as objects like golf balls studded with nails at other fans. Eyewitness accounts from the Hazel Stadium disaster in 1985 mentioned fans of Juventus throwing plastic bags full of urine on Liverpool fans. Whether Central American fans were dousing one another with urine then, I don't know. But once the USA-Mexico rivalry started hotting up in the 1990s, the pee started flying. A reporter for Public Radio International 
International recalled being at a World Cup qualifier in legendary Azteca Stadium in Mexico City in 2001 when, quote, bags of urine and feces began cascading down on us, exploding like water balloons on the 4th of July. But let's be clear, fan-on-fan urine is so mundane that even Americans have done it. Oklahoma football fans reportedly threw urine bags on Colorado fans in 2004. Iowa State fans have been accused of urining on Iowa fans. I think you said urining. Urining (laughs) in 2005. I'm creating a verb. In 2005, Penn State fans allegedly bombarded the Ohio State band with urine-filled balloons. Let's pause here to consider the process of filling a balloon with urine. Not easy, I'd guess, Mike Pesca. Depending on your technique, potentially well, not comfortable. I was going to say yes, depending on <laughs> depending the on your technique. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. The band twist is interesting, but it takes far more commitment to hurl your urine at athletes. So credit to our Central American friends for their pioneering role here in an ESPN oral history of Azteca by men in Blazers stud Roger Bennett. USA midfielder Ricky Davis remembered, quote, gallon bags of urine raining down during a World Cup qualifier all the way back in 1980. He also recalled, quote, basketball-sized bundles of straw, satellite like a ball of fire, in addition to C and D batteries. Davis described the greeting as awe-inspiring. In a 1996 qualifier in San Jose, Costa Rica, U.S. players said they were spat on and hit with everything from coins to nails to broken glass to urine. I looked up and saw this guy with a cup, forward Eric Winalda said. I saw it coming, but there was nothing I could do. El Salvador fans also have tossed urine. Former Canadian national team goalkeeper Paul Dolan said he was a target. And he's Canadian. But when it comes to the passage and distribution of bodily fluids, Azteca fans take it to another level. During a World Cup qualifier in 2009, U.S. national hero Landon Donovan was targeted with bags of urine and bags of vomit. To be clear or not, while I found reports of Azteca fans throwing feces at opposing U.S. supporters, we're number one. And number two, some fan-on-fan feces tossing in Europe, too. I found no evidence that feces have been thrown at players. I admire the fans' restraint there. Way to go. Azteca's reputation for the yellow liquid now precedes it. Consider this from Showtime's all-access series in 2013 before a fight between the execrable Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Canelo Alvarez. Mayweather's walking into a news conference in Mexico City that is crowded with Alvarez fans. He expresses his concern thusly, quote, we're in Mexico. They better not throw no urine on me. The excrement meets the excrement. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for picking up on that. <laughs> I'd end there, but it's worth mentioning this twist on the urine toss. Last year, fans of FC Baden in the Swiss fourth division persuaded a ball boy to toss them the water bottle of the opposing team's goalkeeper. Quote, I took one sip and realized that it was warm, but thought that it was because of the sun, the goalie said. But by the second sip, I realized that something was wrong. So credit to the Baden fans for their innovation. They threw the pee not on the player, but into the player. <laughs> that is really clever. Very clever. And disgusting. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Josh, what's your Tim Stoddard? The University of North Dakota is down to five options to replace its old nickname, the Fighting Sioux. As Stefan afterballed about a few years ago, the NCAA put Fighting Sioux on a list of nicknames it deemed hostile and abusive. 
back in 2005. In 2007, the NCAA agreed to give the school three years to win support from the state's Sioux tribes to continue to use the nickname, support it ultimately did not get. The nickname was retired in 2011, but then the state Senate passed a law ordering the school to keep calling itself the Fighting Sioux, a law that was signed by the governor but ultimately repealed by the legislature during a special session. But the school resumed using the nickname anyway. And then there was a statewide referendum in 2012 in which the Fighting Sioux nickname lost the popular vote. And so Fighting Sioux was gone for good, maybe, although it seems like based on that history, it'll come back at some point to haunt our dreams. But as we look at this now, the university um, is supposed to come up with a new nickname by 2015. And hey, it's 2015. So let's check in. What's going on, North Dakota? What's going on is that the school recently named those five nickname finalists. You've got your Fighting Hawks. You've got Nodax. That's N-O-D-A-K. Yeah. Uh, Sundogs, North Stars, and Rough Riders. One word or two. Uh, There's one word. It's It's a big dispute in the CFL, as we all know. That group of selections naturally annoyed a lot of North Dakotans because that is North Dakotans' natural state when it comes to this stupid nickname. Around 30 people gathered last week to protest this list because the nicknaming committee, that's a lot in North Dakota. True. That's, that's like a half qu- the population. That's a, that's a quorum. Uh, the, nick- <laughs> the nicknaming committee had eliminated, they were mad because they had eliminated the no nickname option. One committee member explained why it had been eliminated by saying, we are and always will be North Dakota. But the thing with that is that everyone else is also North Dakota. Mm. That's not an identity that's just for UND. But now inevitably they're considering putting no nickname back on the list because nothing can be final here. And the runaway winner in a nickname poll run by the Grand Forks Herald was, wait for it, none of the above. Sundogs was last, and I think we can all agree that that was its rightful position. But I want to back up for a minute. Between April 1st and April 30th of this year, the school held an open submission period during which anyone can volunteer a nickname choice. After that, UND published a non-consideration list, a comprehensive list of every nickname that it was not going to choose. This list goes on for 321 pages. (laughs) <laughs> 150 pages of those uh, about are people just writing in Fighting Sue or Sue. 150 pages of that. There are a lot of other choices, too, and I will now read a few selections from the 321-page non-consideration list. Number one, Seventh Cavalry, in honor of General George Custer, shows history of North Dakota and shouldn't piss off any bleeding-heart liberals. <laughs> these are not my with that, sort are... of sens- with that sort of sensitivity you know he understands the mindset of the bleeding heart liberal these are not my explanations by the way the the nickname comes with its own explanation <laughs> on the non-consideration list option number two a-holes from grand forks i am an ndsu alum and i have always called und folks that <laughs> i really like that one next we have a, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, K, L, M, N, P, Q, R, T, V, W, X, Y, Z. Explanation. The letters S, I, O, U, and X have deleted from the alphabet because we are not the Sioux. Mm, clever. <laughs> Air supply? Just has a ring to it. Maybe because I grew up in the 70s. Attorneys? With this name, we fans can still yell, Sue, Sue, Sue. Uh, next up, Boobs. 
Boobs are great. Let's glorify boobs instead of being racist. Well, can't argue with that. Uh, boom. The word boom evokes a feeling of great excitement and power. Imagine thousands of UND fans cheering, UND boom. Wow. Gives me chills. Dickless libtards. That one, there was no explanation provided. None needed. <laughs> Fighting Tom Hanks. This is just a ploy to try to get Tom Hanks to visit campus and come to one of UND's games. Why would he visit if they were, if they were vowing they would be fighting him? Tri- sense. Triceratops. The best Triceratops fossil ever was found in North Dakota. Oh. That deserves more recognition. Seriously. Agree. Whiny little bitches. Both the people for and against the former nickname have behaved like a bunch of whiny little bitches. So this would truly be representative. Then there is... Shuois, X-U-O-I-S, Sue backwards, almost fooled them. Zesty pickles, because they are juicy. And I'm going to end with zombies from UN dead, undead. Zombies are really, quote, in right now. The mascot (laughs) nickname would be epic. The E-A-D at the end could stand for enlightened and disciplined. I think this nickname has everything. And it should not be on the non-consideration list. I'm thinking about two others. Are they on the non-consideration list? The Fighting Sue, S-U-E? That would work. Who would be opposed to Fighting Sue? Like Run Around Sue, Fighting Sue. And then the Fighting Zhu, X-U, which Scrabble players all know is the monetary unit of Vietnam. So, yes, Stefan, to answer your question, Bronco Fighting Sue is on there. Bronco mm-hmm. Fighting Sue Yonker okay, was a talented horsewoman. There mm-hmm. you go. And Yeshiva University could be the Fighting Jew. By the way, the guy who said Air Supply, because I grew up in the 70s, I have you know that all of Air Supply's top 10 hits in the United States were in the 80s, Lost in Love, All Out of Love, Every Woman in the World, The One That I Love, Here I Am, Sweet Dreams, Even the Nights Are Better, Two Less Lonely People in the World, and Making Love Out of Nothing at All. By the way, it should be Two Fewer Lonely People in the World. A lot of people suggested Fighting Sue, S-O-O. The mm-hmm. Sioux Line Railroad, S-O-O, is part of our history and identity. So either Just a lot of clever people in North Dakota. Yeah. I really can't wait to see what they decide. <laughs> Sundogs all the way. All right. It is now time for a surprise extra afterball. Our intern, Emma Zayner, it's her last week. She's done a great job. And she wrote a story for Slate last week that has been afterballized. Uh, Emma, what is your Tim Stoddard? So each time a longstanding track record is broken, it's fun to think about how much faster we can run and under what circumstances. But the opportunities to step back and predict our potential are becoming less and less frequent as record-breaking, especially in long-distance events, is becoming increasingly rare. A week and a half ago, Ethiopian Jinzib Dababa broke the world record in the women's 1500 meters, running 350.07, 0.39 seconds faster than the record set in 1993. Not only was the record 22 years old, but Dababa is the only woman since 1997 to run faster than 355. The records for the women's mile and the men's 1500 meter mile were all set in the 1990s. While track record breaking in general seems to be slowing down, these mid-distance records are especially stuck. But this trend is relatively new. In the second half of the 20th century, it looked like we would just keep getting faster and at a somewhat constant rate. One study in Nature magazine predicted just that, even adding that women may someday run faster than men. Later, as improvements started to level off in 2005, researchers at the English Institute of Sport predicted that many of the endurance records were nearing their peak and that women may have already run their fastest time in the 1500. When I asked Alan Neville, who worked on the study, about Dababa's record, he was still confident that women have pretty much peaked in that event, despite the Ethiopian women's small gain. 
David Epstein, the author of The Sports Scene, says that a lot of our improvements are the result of improved technologies. So as we run out of new innovations, we are also reaching our limits. We may have room for small gains, but Neville and Epstein both seem to think that we won't be making any significant improvements, barring genetic engineering new technologies and changed policies about performance-enhancing drugs. Then again, Sir Roger Bannister, the first sub-four-minute miler, says men can go under 330 in the mile, which would be a huge improvement over the current marker of 343.13. If 330 sounds impossible, so did four minutes when Bannister first cracked it in 1954. I tend to agree with Epstein and Neville, but when you watch Baba in that race, it looks like she has even more in her. In 50 years, I say Baba and a few others will have broken the record to bring it down to 349.5, but we'll just have to wait and see. A whole second <laughs> faster. We'll have to wait 50 years for a whole second, Stefan. There's a total metaphysical quality to distance records. I mean, if 350.07, why not 350.06? <laughs> Is that... Why not 350.05? What do you call it? Metaphysic? Meta- metaphysical? I think it's maybe just uh, faster. I think the word you're looking for is slightly faster. Yeah, but then if you, extra- <laughs> if you keep going into the future, if somebody can run, you know, if, if after 50 years we knock off 51 hundredths of, right. 51 hundredths of a second... You know, after a thousand years, yeah, you know the mile will be running. I haven't done the math. But everyone will pretty be, fast. Everyone will have a Segway scooter grafted onto him. So yeah. what it will be. Well, in a thousand years, I think Emma probably has the best chance of all of us to be alive at that point due to radical <laughs> life extension. So she'll have to just let us know if that happens. Do another afterball in a thousand years, Emma. Okay. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today, North Dakotans and otherwise. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern, and thanks to her for her fantastic interning service, is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.